This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last month occasioned a spate of reminders that the Iraq War has been a murderous human-made disaster. It was the 15th anniversary of a war that, it turns out, never ends, and which, alongside the invasion of Afghanistan, has spiraled into a series of endless wars that, at every turn, help create their own amorphous enemies. Aziz Rana, a dig super guest, recently wrote a piece for N Plus One, following up on a question that I asked him during his last appearance on this show. Why exactly has opposition to U.S. empire failed to become a central issue across so much of the U.S. left? Aziz has some thoughtful answers to that question. But before we get started, this also marks our 100th episode, which is pretty sweet. Please help us celebrate this glorious occasion by participating in our spring fundraising drive. We have more than 800 supporters on Patreon, and our goal is to get that number to 1,000 by the end of June. If you contribute $10 a month, we will send you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. If you donate $20 or more, we will send you a bunch of books authored by great left-wing authors. You can choose from a bunch of different titles, including, as of now, Sarah Jaffe's Necessary Trouble, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's How We Get Free on the Combahee River Collective, and Barbara and Karen Fields' Racecraft. And we have a new thing to thank those of you who donate at five bucks or more, which is a weekly newsletter written by me about the show 
that provides links to further reading you can do on the topics we discuss here, which is something that many of you have requested in the past. So here you go. Many listeners can't afford to donate at all. So if you can afford to, please do. We're doing something different here, I think, in trying to piece together the intellectual and activist strands of an ascendant socialist left. And it's so cliche, but we really can't do it without your support. So if you haven't already, please go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And here's my interview with Aziz Rana, a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of the amazing book, The Two Faces of American Freedom. Super guest Aziz Rana, welcome back to The Dig. Great to be back on the show. When I had you on recently to discuss your N plus one article on the breakup of the long Cold War political economic order, we talked a little bit about why Bernie Sanders didn't focus on foreign policy, which I've long found particularly confounding for a few different reasons. Hillary Clinton's weakness on the issue, her vulnerability on it, um, widespread popular disillusion with foreign wars, and the way that Trump exploited both Hillary Clinton's weaknesses on the issue and popular disillusion with foreign wars to win the White House. And you note in this this new piece that you have at N plus one that on domestic issues, this ascendant left wing and social democratic force in American politics has really pushed Democrats to the to the left on on domestic issues. At least you can just look at the Medicare for all becoming a litmus test of sorts and and I think that's great, but but as you write, quote, no equivalent exists when it comes to foreign policy. So w- what is going on? Why is there this this push left on on domestic policy that we're not seeing on foreign policy? So I think there are a bunch of things that are going on. Um, first, I, I think we should just appreciate that we do have left social movements. Uh, that have placed American foreign policy and debates about American foreign policy uh, at the heart of their own politics and are making comprehensive critiques of American empire and like kind of the racialized logics of American empire. And you can see this with the vision statement of the movement for black lives. You can see this at um, the Convention for Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. Um, but it hasn't reached the, the party itself, the Democratic Party and the, the elected leaders within the party. And to me, I think there are a bunch of reasons why. One is just the long-standing position uh, among social democratic forces within the, the party that goes all the way back to um, the early days of the Cold War to essentially like, separate domestic and foreign issues. And so to treat these as distinct realms and to imagine foreign policy as something that's essentially supervised by various kinds of national security experts and elites. And to the extent that foreign policy becomes relevant, it's when the U.S. is engaged in truly aggressive acts of war that are that are problematic. And so you can have the left wing of the party say, well, 
Vietnam is bad or the Iraq war more recently is, is, is problematic. But what you don't have is anything like a sustained effort to actually engage with foreign policy because that's carved off as a, as a separate sphere. And indeed, you get the sense among certain um, elected Democrats that they, they also, in a way, think of it as expertise that's like beyond their own depth or um, realm to engage with. In terms of them not being technocratically uh, equipped, and so they defer to the national security state establishment, yeah, which I, is I kind of so. similar to how the Wall Street establishment tends to move into Democratic White Houses. So it's actually not that different in some ways to how um, Democratic Party economic policy had gone since the 1970s, with sort of the rise of neoliberalism and the idea that, well, the economy is this domain for economic expertise. And those experts actually know how best to generate growth. And there are limits on really how far ranging um, uh, you can pursue policy changes that are consistent with either like old style Keynesianism or um, democratic socialist ideas. Uh, And in many ways, like 2008 and the financial crisis broke that hegemony. And one would have thought that the Iraq war would have broken the hegemony when it comes to national security expertise, but it really didn't. One reason that it didn't that we need to talk about is Barack Obama. His his election and presidency are these critical junctures in, in the backstory to how we get to where we are. He He ran as an anti-war candidate. This was an important part of both his primary challenge to Hillary Clinton and to his general election campaign. And then in office, he continued to wage the war on terror with with only minor modifications. And it seems to me that one really critical piece of this is for the same reason that Obama decided not to to prosecute people in the Bush administration who engaged in in torture, this whole idea that we need to to look forward and not uh, get caught in the past – that this is really part and parcel of, of, of a, his general philosophy on national security and in foreign policy. And, and what that did, I think, was facilitate a, a continuation on the one hand and on the other hand, a normalization of, of Bush's foreign policy. And so this opportunity for, for some kind of rupture was lost. A large part of this had to do with the nature of the critique of the Iraq war that that Obama made, um, and that was the common critique within the Democratic Party at the time. So when the Democratic Party splits over Iraq, they basically split over an issue of pragmatism, which is not a questioning of the underlying logic that actually led the country to Iraq, um, but instead a questioning about whether or not this particular intervention was justified or necessary. Um, And that ends up being an argument about, well, would the U.S. actually be greeted as liberators? Will the Iraq war produce the kind of rippling domino effect that generates small-scale um, Jeffersonian democracy across the Middle East? Um, and the easy answer at the time, and even now, is no. Um, but that became the, the the terms of the debate. And it meant that Obama as president was essentially cabining the critique while defending the framework that justified continuous American international police power and interventionism. And, you know, I think a really clear example of this was Obama's Nobel 
um, Nobel Prize speech that he gave. So a lot of the focus basically since Obama received the Nobel Prize was the idea of him receiving it just at the beginning of his first term and whether or not that was entirely appropriate. And you could see that he himself was a little bit uncomfortable with it. But, but what was telling is that he used the speech not just to defend the idea that some wars are just, so as a critique of kind of comprehensive pacifist position, but to specifically defend U.S. behavior during the Cold War, to say that the U.S. has essentially underwritten global security since the 1950s through the force of its arms. I begin with this point because in many countries there is a deep ambivalence about military action today, no matter what the cause. And at times, this is joined by a reflexive suspicion of America, the world's sole military superpower. Yet the world must remember that it was not simply international institutions, not just treaties and declarations, that brought stability to a post-World War II world. Whatever mistakes we have made, the plain fact is this. The United States of America has helped underwrite global security for more than six decades with the blood of our citizens and the strength of our arms. The service and sacrifice of our men and women in uniform has promoted peace and prosperity from Germany to Korea and enabled democracy to take hold in places like the Balkans. We have borne this burden not because we seek to impose our will. We have done so out of enlightened self-interest because we seek a better future for our children and grandchildren, and we believe that their lives will be better if others' children and grandchildren can live in freedom and prosperity. And so to interpret all of the acts of continuous military, political, and economic intervention and the really destructive global effects of those interventions as positive and necessary. And if that's the, the comprehensive worldview, then it's going to be very difficult once in office to actually break with the individuals that pressed for the war or to break with the larger framework of the war on terror within which Iraq ended up being wrapped. And it also means that it's hard then to hold people accountable for things like torture. I mean, because on the one hand, you can say, well, this is a pragmatic decision because you don't want to fight like the, prop, like the wars of the past or the problems of the past. But in a way, it's also consistent with the idea that if, you know, this is the, the heart of kind of like the Cold War vision, which is if the U.S. interests are the world's interests because the U.S. from the founding has been committed to freedom and equality, and as a result, it's the ultimate backstop for global security, and it enjoys a kind of international police power that means that it has a right to intervene whenever and wherever it sees disorder. If that's the way that you think of American power, and you essentially think that the U.S.'s security ends are, are like equivalent to human rights imperatives and that human rights imperatives and security ends kind of fold into one another, then the ends of American power and violence are always justified. And even if sometimes the means are problematic, um, you know, you don't want to spend too much time thinking about what those means have been, because to think about what those means have been is essentially to hold accountable people that are doing basically good things. It's a distinction um, between a, an error and a crime. Exactly. It's all so that, I mean, you know, the the idea in general of states holding their own actors and elites accountable for their criminal behavior, their, you know, their lawlessness. I mean, that's 
it, it's very difficult um, <laughs> to have those in power actually hold themselves accountable as a general matter. But it certainly happened globally. It doesn't happen in the U.S. I mean, there's essentially like systematic impunity. And part of the reason why there's systematic impunity is because of the idea that every act of violence that the U.S. engages in, you know, is ultimately the product of good intentions. And because it's the product of good intentions, it's just an error in the execution. I mean, this is part of how, you know, um, Obama is able not only to say, well, we should turn the page on prosecuting people for whatever acts of torture or crimes that they've committed, but like why, you know, the Obama family and the Bush family can grow close. Because, you know, George Bush at the end of the day is a good man. He has good intentions. It just happened to be that the means were problematic. Um, that, but that doesn't tell you anything about like the essence or truth of the national project where it continues to be the case. So the argument goes that, uh, that the world's interests and the U.S. interests are, are absolutely aligned. Um, and that's a, that's a huge problem. And it plays out in the executive branch. It plays out in Congress. It plays out in the courts where it's been very, very difficult for people that were subject to abuse to be able to actually get some kind of transparency, accountability, um, because of the construction of court doctrine um, that makes it very, very hard to pr pursue those cases, even when those cases would, you know, even when they have the opportunity as plaintiffs to. Um, so all of these things end up being interlinked. This Cold War presumption of the righteousness of, of American powers is, is, is so, so foundational, so, so hegemonic in the United States that even many, I think on the, at least the liberal left and maybe the left left even sometimes don't always understand it when they, when they see it because it's just so profoundly normal. And two examples historically come, come to mind. One, um, is Obama in 2002, um, when he gave this speech in Chicago at an anti-Iraq war protest uh, before the war started, obviously, where he says he's opposed to a dumb war. I don't oppose war in all circumstances. And when I look out over this crowd today, I know there is no shortage of patriots or patriotism. What I do oppose is a dumb war. I think alluding back to what you said earlier. And then another example in 2004 is John Kerry when he's running for president accusing George W. Bush of having, I think the phrase was, take, taken the eye off the ball by invading Iraq when Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan. I believe in being strong and resolute and determined, and I will hunt down and kill the terrorists wherever they are. But we also have to be smart, Jim. And smart means not diverting your attention from the real war on terror in Afghanistan against Osama bin Laden and taking it off to Iraq, where the 9-11 Commission confirms there was no connection to 9-11 itself in Saddam Hussein, and where the reason for going to war was weapons of mass destruction, not the removal of Saddam Hussein. And I think this, this good underpinning this all is not only this, this Cold War ideology that that we've discussed and that you write about, but also this 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 very foundational good war, bad war framing that has been so prevalent amongst American liberals since the war on terror began. 
Afghanistan is is the just war and the Iraq war is is the bad one and it's still so remarkable to me to this day that Barbara Lee was this only person in Congress to vote no and I, I mean at least at least we're still debating Iraq on some level where where Afghanistan is just I don't know it's just disappeared into the backdrop the first point is that you know there's a basic problem about how American security ends and the assumption that American security ends are universal human rights commitments, how, how, how that linkage ends up playing out. I mean, um, the simple truth is that, you know, American security ends have specific kinds of goals for the types of regional orderings um, the security state and those that are elites within the security state want for the kinds of economic arrangements, state institutions, um, um, local leaders, and that those security ends end up being deeply incompatible oftentimes with the actual desires of local constituencies. In other words, there's a basic tension between these security goals and local self-determination. But the way in which the security ends are wrapped up in kind of a universalizing rights rhetoric means that it's very difficult for American elites to see this. So what ends up happening is that you have intervening practices, and it's not always just military intervention, but it could be, you know, um, various forms of coercive um, violence from sanctions to force, or it could actually be like political interventions or economic interventions. But you have these various interventions that produce real tension with local communities on the ground that end up being destabilizing. And you can tell this story going all the way back to the beginning of the Cold War. And so then the same problems recur over and over and over and over again. But elites don't necessarily recognize these as problems of the, sec- the ends of the security state and the incompatibility with the security state and local self-determination. They, they see this as, oh, well, maybe the means that we used were problematic, or maybe there's something actually wrong with the local community. Somehow that lo- the local community doesn't have the cultural capacity to understand its, you know, understand freedom or its own true interests. And so what ends up happening repeatedly is that um, the actual practices, even in the so-called good wars that don't, you know, obviously explode as as really deeply problematic, like the the actual practices end up being really destructive. So you can tell a story of Afghanistan, the good war, where we're now 16 years later and the country continues to still be like deeply destabilized because of the ways in which American force was meant to basically serve a set of security ends that are incompatible with lo- local arrangements. Um, and then I think there's let like alone Pakistan. Other, yeah, the, let alone pa- Pakistan. But you can tell this story as a continuous story of the, like the 90s to the, the Bush era. So in the 90s, we have um, you know the Clinton language of humanitarian intervention, which is broadened out from just like stopping ongoing genocides to basically wherever the state views human rights norms as imperiled, but human rights norms read through security arrangements and existing regional alliances that ends up justifying, you know, unilateral strikes in places like um, Sudan Sudan and Kosovo and uh, various kinds of um, sanctions regimes that produce a kind of discretionary unilateralism. So you can tell that story is continuous with the Iraq war era, and you can also tell both of those as continuous with a set of practices that preceded it during the Cold War. 
Um, and all of this is kind of backstopped by the, you know, the example of the good war, which is World War II. Um, and, you know, my view about World War II is that the Nazi Germany is a global hegemon engaged in um, an effort at like fascist world conquest um, that had to be stopped. Um, but American role in the war ends up being a frame by which to read all practices after the war. In other words, all future enemies, whether or not they're in fact like, you know, global superpowers engaged in efforts at world conquest, are understood in those terms as like extreme threats. And anytime you use other means besides, you know, what you might think of as, as like coercive or confrontational um, force, you're just engaged in a kind of appeasement. And because the U.S. played the particular role it played during World War II, then whatever it does after World War II is also read as motivated by a set of good intentions where American interests are the world's interests. And so there's a kind of massive like mythology that ends up getting built around the war that ends up justifying a politics of permanent and continuous intervention that has all of these destructive effects, but are never actually read as a product of the underlying ideology. I think that is this ideology about the good war being the model for all future wars is is, is powerful and pervasive in, in the United States. And it's not only that every potential enemy is is a Hitler who must either be confronted or appeased, as you mentioned, but I think also that the people of those countries are almost like these concentration camp inmates who are bizarrely ungrateful, as far as Americans are concerned, often, at being liberated. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that ends up producing the kind of, um, you know, racist and ethno-nationalist sort of isolationist views that you get on the right that somebody like Trump is is playing on in the present, which is you have um, a continuous politics of intervention. And the claim about the intervention is, again, that well, what the U.S. is doing is um, pursuing interests that are the world's interests, that are consistent with those of local communities on the ground because our security goals are essentially global human rights imperatives. And then when the local communities resist or oppose or have very kind of fractured and complicated responses, um, you know, w what the liberal position has generally been, it's like, well, you know, maybe that pragmatically wasn't the right set of means. Like we shouldn't, so like the Iraq war story, like we should never have disbanded um, the Ba'athist military. That was the problem with, with Iraq. But on the right, then you get the argument that says, these people are ungrateful. Like there's something culturally wrong about wrong with them. They're not able to actually internalize American freedom. And so they're not worthy of our own actions and response. And that what we need to do is um, withdraw systematically, close the borders, not allow people from non-white backgrounds to come in. And bomb, um, and bomb and, the hell out of those countries exactly. if they ever give us trouble. So it's you combine so you combine isolationism with an extremely belligerent posture. Um, that in many ways is just as, if not even more destructive than like the, the Cold War imperial frame. And I think this is so key and does not get talked about very much at, at all, which is that this this shift from this very violent but 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 very idealistic 
neoconservative worldview where we are bringing democracy to people to to Trump's cynicism really really pivots on the the fact that we were not greeted as as liberators which i think actually was was promised to americans and i think americans bought until they couldn't buy it anymore it's really true that the if the claim is that what the us does abroad is really so to to say that american interests are the world's interests is another way of saying that like when we actually engage in intervention what we're really doing is uh, a kind of act of like noblesse oblige. We're like, we're helping others. It's a sacrifice. Um, it's an effort to improve the conditions that other communities face. And if that's in fact not how things are experienced on the ground, then there are a lot of different ways that you deal with the cognitive dissonance. So one way of dealing with the cognitive dissonance is like, well, we need to use better means in the future. But another way of dealing with the cognitive dissonance is to say there's something wrong with the other people. And that has a lot to do with the entire way that American power ends up being framed, which is not, you know, in terms of what it in fact is. The U.S. is, you know, enjoys uh, global primacy. It's a superpower. It has a set of regional arrangements that are consistent with how the security state imagines um, its own interests. Those interests are tied um, to business and defense establishment, and they have, um, you know, certain prerequisites, and that these prerequisites end up oftentimes producing, you know, extensive violence and um, discord on the ground. Um, but because all of that's masked through a kind of justifying ideology that's a universal one, it's really hard necessarily in our, you know, our general conversations to, to, to like recognize, well, why is it that, um, why is it that there's so much local instability that's in fact generated by American action? That brings me to something else I want to talk about, which is what what seems to me to be the war on terror's very powerful path dependence, by which I mean that it's this this war machine that continuously creates the the very conditions of instability and insecurity that then justify its continuation. There it creates the chaos that must be managed and new enemies who must be destroyed. And so concretely, it's it's one thing to oppose the, the Iraq war before it started. And today and in recent years, another thing entirely to articulate an alternative method to deal with the rise of ISIS. The Iraq war made it possible, but that bridge has been crossed. The Iraq war happened and now there's ISIS or there was. So for me, this explains a lot about why the anti-war movement of the early and mid 2000s collapsed so so quickly and and so quietly, because once the cat was out of the bag, the proposal of the anti-war movement became very confused. The early 2000s, by comparison with today, just you don't have nearly as vibrant a left or as sort of like generally radicalized um, uh, set of public constituencies and popular um, uh, popular social right. movements. Um, and the majority of the argument that was made was an opposition to entrance to the war and to the persistence of the war on the terms of like 2003, 2004, and a lot of talk about like not in my name. Um, this meant that really, you know, this wasn't again like a critique of American power as such. It was a critique of what the U.S. was doing in Iraq 
and um, and the kind of adventurism, the sort of like crazed adventurism within the neoconservative establishment that led the country to war. Um, and that's a really, it's a kind of limited critique. And then what ends up happening is like, if there's more and more instability on, in Iraq, or if there's like spillover effects with the emergence of groups like ISIS into places like, like Syria, um, it's really hard to think about, well, what the U.S. should do now. And you can even say the same thing with Afghanistan, where it's like, there might be a growing sense that even that good war, things aren't actually going according to plan, but there's no clear idea of what to do. And the only prescriptive model is the model, again, in a way that's drawn from World War II that ends up being read through the Cold War, and it's, it's confrontation or appeasement. The way that you respond to what you perceive as threats is by using force. And so there's a systematic devaluation of diplomacy and an idea that if you're not using force, then you're either engaging in appeasement or you're losing. Um, and in a way, like the response to all of this should have been, like, or the way to think about it is that there's, a, there's an alternative frame. Um, and maybe we can get into this in, in a little bit, but like one alternative frame is just that if the US is responsible for generating extreme forms of violence on the ground, then it's equally responsible for alleviating that suffering. And alleviating suffering as like a framing device, so what I call do no harm, um, as one of like the, the principles in the piece, um, has a whole a wholly different toolkit than, um, than breaking things, basically, or using force or, or, or more violence. So, you know, what a left response could have been to the Iraq war was well, what would actually be the conditions that would, you know, would pull the society together? Or a response now in the context of Syria and ISIS would be like, well, what would be the kinds of policies um, that would actually address like the immediate humanitarian needs, like health, um, uh, housing, education, um, that that communities face, that deal with internal displacement, that deals with like ongoing refugee crisis, that attempts to um, provide an inclusive diplomatic frame that, that brings all of the various parties together, including international and domestic ones, to the table, and that also deals bilaterally with some of the most powerful opposed actors. I mean, so these are tools that were available in 2006, 2007, 2008, when you know Obama was contemplating the surge, and has been available in Afghanistan through like the various iterations of the surge but are never the ones that are brought to the table. And they're not brought to the table because they're outside the rubric of confrontation or appeasement. And they also end up inherently critiquing or going against the existing regional alliances um, in ways that maybe we can talk about too. On the one hand, it is worth mentioning the, the administration's dishonesty in selling the case for war to the public, but it also occurs to me that this is a, a, a way to sort of provide cover to to liberals who supported the war because they were misled. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. I mean, so there, there's a lot of stuff that was going on at the time. I mean, so there was definitely the emphasis on weapons of mass destruction and the ways in which the administration, you know, lied about um, whether or not those weapons existed. 
Um, but, you know, there was also lots of countervailing evidence that, um, that the weapons weren't there. And I remember conversations with, you know, with friends that I thought of as generally like left leaning, where when presented with the evidence that the weapons weren't there, like that, you know, actually Colin Powell's statement, you know, speech to the UN is just totally pretty much bogus. Um, and that, well, here's this scholar. His name is Glenn Rangwala. He's done all of this extensive work on whether or not these various dossiers, including the ones that are coming out of England, are in fact true. Um, the response was basically like, wait, I'm supposed to listen to some unnamed academic rather than the Secretary of State? There was <laughs> the most I mean, honorable, hard to imagine. The most yeah, honorable man hard. in the Bush administration, Colin Powell. Exactly. It's hard to imagine this now because of how different the times are, but it was absolutely the case that there was a kind of pervasive credulity around, um, you know, around the, the just like government speech and the ways in which, you know, if a person is power is in power, then what the person says should be taken basically at, at face value. Um, that shaped a lot of the terms of that debate, even if it was apparent you know, that we're, the country was being sold a bill of goods. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that there were many liberals who supported the war, whether or not Saddam, had, uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Like the weapons of mass destruction was one part of the story, but there was a strong component of support for the war, which was basically an extreme um, extension of, not even that extreme, but an extension of the humanitarian intervention logic that had marked Democratic Party foreign policy thinking in the 90s. So this is the Samantha Powers of the world, the Michael Dantievs of the world, um, uh, you know, Thomas Friedman, and on and on and on, who understood Saddam Hussein to be like a rogue actor that needed to be replaced. Um, and, you know, that Bush him, himself and the fact that like Bush lied and the problems of how the war ended up being prosecuted, it provided a really nice cover for all of those folks because they could ultimately say, well, this isn't the war I backed. And to me, the person that really embodies that, that's been kind of forgotten is Joe Biden. Like Biden in the lead up to the war was as big a champion of the war effort as you could find, like, you know, along with some of the people that I've just named. Um, you know, he was, he went on and on about how like brilliant Colin Powell's speech was to the UN. And even when things started going bad, you know, Biden's response was, well, you know what we need to do? This is again, consistent with the longstanding, um, you know, interventionist narrative that the US enjoys a kind of continuous right to reconstruct foreign states as it sees fit. His response was, well, you know, it's these, these ethnic communities just can't get along. And, you know, later, uh, when it became apparent what an utter fiasco all of this was, that what, what does Biden do? He, like, he retreats behind the claim that, well, it's, you know, it was Bush's fault, like those folks were incompetent. Um, and the weapons story and the incompetence of the administration basically allowed, you know, all of these folks to kind of get off the hook. And it also allowed them to avoid sort of like questioning the, their, like the inter internal justifications that made the war something that was extremely like unreasonable and irrational seem like eminently rational. And not only does Biden 
seem to think that he should have been the Democratic candidate in 2016, but that he might very well be that candidate in 2020, um, which to me suggests that there is a continuing presumption to this day in 2018 with Trump in office that there will be no consequences for members of the Democratic establishment who have been involved in in selling and authorizing the Iraq war. Absolutely. I mean, this gets us back to the, the initial question that you, you sort of raised about Medicare for all. I mean, just look at what happened with Cory Booker and his relationship with pharmace- this pharmaceutical industry. Like, so Booker um, had to essentially publicly say that he was not going to continue accepting money from pharmaceuticals. And so there is, when I say that there's an economic litmus test now that's emerged among people that are 2020 hopefuls and that want to aspire to leadership in the, the, the Democratic Party, it's, it's on a range of issues that are tied broadly um, to the kind of politics of social democracy that, that Sanders pressed in 2016 and that have, you know, have bubbled up kind of from below the surface. But really, there's just absolutely like nothing like that when it comes to, to foreign policy. Um, and, you know, you could even see it as like one sort of recent example from the last week is what happened um, with Israeli snipers shooting unarmed Palestinian, like peaceful protesters engaged in mass civil disobedience, you know, wounding hundreds, killing, I don't know if the, the toll now is 15 or 17. Um, and there was only one really si- significant. Uh, progressive Democrat that that said anything about this, which is Bernie Sanders. But there's general silence from the whole host of people that would seek to be the party's nominee in 2020. Um, in fact, I believe Kamala and, Harris was at APAC a few weeks or a couple yeah, months ago, and, or whenever. And, and that's um, that to me. So when I say that there there needs to be a foreign policy litmus test, it's that there should be uh, like on a host of issues that are broadly connected by a non-imperial framework a sort of a presumption that people will be held accountable if they fail to speak out or fail to act or actually perpetuate the practices of the security state. It should be, um, it should be fundamentally discrediting for somebody like Biden, not only his role during the Iraq war, but his continuing policies post-Iraq. It should be a huge problem for somebody that claims to be a, a part of the left of the party to, re- to remain silent when um, the U.S.'s most significant ally in, in the Middle East um, engages in, you know, an extreme act of violence that, you know, embodies all of the problems with the existing relationship, the ways in which it denies Palestinian self-determination and humanity, how it um, undermines regional stability, um, what it does to our relationship to the U.N., our credibility with um, international legal arrangements. Um, but, you know, there's a persistence of silence because both in 2016 and even to this day, like the question about the national security state has essentially been swept under the rug. It's And there's this incredible dissonance between these progressive claims made by most 2020 
hopefuls and the reality of their their foreign policies in general and their their policies vis-a-vis Israel and Palestine in, in particular. And it's this generally unnoticed, unstated one. To what degree does this rather particular U.S. relationship with with Israel offer a window into U.S. foreign policy and the set of regional alliances that it rests on as a whole? To me, the, the, the U.S. has sort of built um, its regional relationships around Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Um, and, you know, the, the Middle East policy seems predicated on being able to maintain access to, to oil, um, a presumption about a kind of cultural affinity with, with Israel, so the protection of like, Israel's status in the region, and then the defense of various kinds of security arrangements with client states and states that are like, deeply um, authoritarian that pr- preserve um, the existing arrangements. And the real problem, and this is a problem that's been apparent since well before 2011, but certainly post-Arab Spring, is that this regional ordering um, is at root incompatible with the goals of many of the local communities on the ground. And it's also one that you know, is necessarily in various ways produced a kind of belligerent posture and confrontational framework um, with uh, the countries that are viewed as American enemies in the region, particularly Iran. So, for example, basically what the U.S. has been doing since um, the Obama administration continuing now under Trump is giving a kind of carte blanche um, to to allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel to pursue both their own internal domestic politics as well as their kind of regional policies um, without any kind of constraint. And with Saudi Arabia, what that's meant is um, you know the real destruction in Yemen, crackdown on popular uprising and popular resistance in Bahrain, um, the backing of like uh, Sunni militias in Syria, and we can see that you know an equivalently problematic set of practices emerging in terms of the kind of carte blanche the U.S. is giving um, to Netanyahu and to to Israel. Um, now, all of this. You know, what it ends up doing, the reason why this isn't just a matter of foreign policy, is it ends up further implicating the U.S. in instability and violence um, in the service, basically, of um, a defense establishment and, you know, energy companies and various kinds of, like, um, capitalist econo- you know, economic orderings in ways that, you know, sink both arms and treasure into the region and end up undermining precisely the kinds of sort of domestic commitments that we would think of as progressive that are incompatible basically with either the interests of like neoliberal capital or of, uh, of a kind of militarized intensified um, foreign policy. And so when progressive politicians basically are unwilling or so-called progressive politicians are unwilling to actually uh, alter the terms of these regional alliances and to call into question like their their utility um, it's not just a matter of like a problematic foreign policy it's actually sustaining an entire approach to the globe that ends up necessarily undercutting over time the capacity to actually pursue what we think of as 
essential and emancipatory changes domestically. Like these things are are deeply interlinked, um, and they're interlinked even well beyond the region. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. It's a Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. The powerful wave of rage fueling Me Too has finally refocused public attention on sexual harassment and sexual violence and starkly posed questions of power, of feminism, and of politics. How do we define violence? How do we discuss and experience sex? Who gets to tell stories of sexual assault? And who gets to be heard? How impoverished is our language for describing the intersection of power, desire, and violence? What is the relationship between individual struggles and collective protest? What do we do with the abusers? In short, this moment has recalled a much older question. How do we get free? In this collection of new and previously published writings, leading activists, feminists, scholars, and writers describe the shape of the problem, chart the forms refusal has taken, and outline possible solutions. Importantly, they also describe the longer histories of organizing against sexual violence that the Me Too moment obscures among working women, women of color, undocumented women, imprisoned women, poor women, among those who don't conform to traditional gender roles, and discern from those practices a freedom that is more than notional, but embodied and uncompromising. Contributors to this book include Tarana Burke and Elizabeth Aditiba, Lauren Berlant, T.D. Bhattacharya, Stephanie Kuntz, Melissa Jira Grant, Laura Kipnis, Gabriel Thompson, Larissa Pham, Alex Press, Jane Ward, and Tarian L. Williamson. Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. A Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. According to your account, a key first step for the, the left is to break down this division between domestic and, and foreign politics implemented during the Cold War. I, I want you to say a little bit about why that that division, that divide happened and what its consequences have been, and then talk a little bit about how we can overcome it. It seems like we that there is language for that that's always remained on the U.S. left in terms of, you know, that bumper sticker about the Air Force not having enough money that they have to hold bake sales and schools have all the money they, they need and and kind of especially this kind of funding schools instead of war framing that I think has has always been been around but but say a little bit about the history and, and how you think we can get out of it a quick way of of sort of imagining how this divide emerged I mean so in the first half of the 20th century the the U.S. had a a powerful labor movement that was very consciously internationalist large segments of it were internationalist and by this I mean they recognized the primary set of allegiances as among workers globally. Um, and that meant that you had an allegiance uh, not necessarily to the, the imperatives of your own state, but to 
um, the aspirational goals and commitments of other communities that are oppressed that are facing similar labor conditions. And there's an equivalent politics when it when it came to the civil rights movement, the black freedom struggles that is also like deeply international. Um, and one of the things that the Cold War frame did is first it brought a massive crackdown on the Communist Party and socialist elements and those that were viewed as somehow sympathetic with um, the Soviet Union in ways that really went after and targeted internationalism and helped generate culturally a kind of working class American patriotism that viewed any kind of international sensibility as necessarily uh, unpatriotic or incompatible with what it means to be a true American. And then at the same time, you had a much more like domesticated labor movement that basically made, um, you know, made, made a set of compromises. And the compromise was that if as long as the state and the kind of like New Deal um, presidents, both um, Democratic but even Republican, are willing to leave um, sort of like the labor victories aside um, to ensure that there's collective bargaining and strike rights and all these other kinds of things, then, you know, the, the unions aren't necessarily going to engage in a, an aggressive sort of interrogation of American foreign policy. And this, of course, reached its apotheosis with Vietnam, where you had s some labor activists um, that spoke out against the war, but like the general posture of the AFL-CIO was, um, was in many ways to, <clears throat> to, to avoid um, engaging with the question of, of Vietnam. Um, and I think this, this ties to the first question you asked about, um, about like the, the kind of New Deal Democrats today, where it ended up also influencing the posture of Democratic politicians, where the politicians that were most aligned with labor ended up focusing exclusively on domestic issues rather than thinking of these things as interconnected or imagining that to be you know, somebody that backs labor requires in a deep sense to be internationalist because it means being able to think of capitalism as a global phenomenon. And the failure to do so both within the party and within the unions ended up producing a really kind of negative set of cyclical eff effects. And, you know, the most, most obvious is that the state pr pursued a foreign policy that promoted the interests of capital, that ended up defending various kinds of interventions um, that ended up at home compromising um, both like the the money that was available for um, social programs, but also um, that strengthened the hand of business and business's own crackdown, made business increasingly mobile and strengthened business's ability to go after unions. And it also meant that the kinds of natural alliances, and this is something that's really key between um, activists at home and, and um, communities abroad ended up really breaking down. And so you had a global structure of capitalism that sustained inequality and domination, but you didn't have any of the kinds of solidaristic links or far less of the solidaristic links that could connect those that are experiencing like the, 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 the blunt edge of capitalist violence at home to those that were experiencing similar circumstances elsewhere. This, um, book that I'm re reviewing with Theory of Frankos about uh, by, by Yasha Munk, The People vs. Democracy, makes this argument that he also made in a New York Times op-ed that the, to take on 
the the far right, what what liberals must do is re-embrace nationalism. I mean, that it's an argument that's that's wrong on on so many yeah. different levels. But in fact, uh, one of the key reasons that it's wrong is that as as you just laid out, nationalism is a central obstacle to not only building a more peace and glo- just global order, but in reordering domestic politics towards something that actually works for people. Because they, what what happens vis-a-vis nationalism is sort of the citizenship version of the, the wages of, of whiteness, where, where citizens, by way of their status as Americans, are can can vicariously benefit from 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 the nation's global standing and glory but but just as as the wages of whiteness wearing thin i think played a role in 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 trump's appeal so did the open question of what of what sort of status benefits one gets from being an american at this this moment of crisis for american empire that i think that also played a major role i could not agree with you more and calls now to re-embrace nationalism are, you know, one of the things that I find like most crazy making about um, <laughs> how liberals have responded to the, the emergence of Trump. Um, because in point of fact, um, the, the heart of, of Cold War liberalism has been a kind of wishy-washy, we the people nationalism. that's built on the idea that, you know, Americans are individuals. They have a connection to the state because of these various rights that are provided, and they're invested in the actions of the security state because what the U.S. does is it promotes um, uh, the world's interest when it acts abroad. And all of that is undergirded, um, uh, undergirded sort of like a bipartisan consensus, um, and it's pointedly failed to constrain sort of a, a belligerent ethno-nationalist right. Um, and the reason why it's failed is because of inherent problems within the nationalist posture itself, which is in order to be able to confront oppressive social forces, whether it's business, whether it's, you know, uh, white, like, you know, the, the emergence of like white nationalist power, the prevalence and persistence of white nationalist power, you actually need to have something like an oppositional political culture. In other words, you have to have a sense of, well, what are the um, what, what are the sort of structural constraints that you as a community find yourself in? Like, who, in fact, are your friends and who are your enemies? Who do you share interests with? And one of the things that class identity, as well as, you know, various versions of black internationalism and third world internationalism did is that they provided a clear account of capital and empire as the big comprehensive social forces that undermine your own domestic freedom. And that mean that in order to confront capitalism, that you have to see that they're people that are in fact oppressive. These are oppressive business interests. To, to confront empire, you have to recognize that there's ongoing relations of like racialized colonialism and people that are pursuing those. And that means that you can't just presume some like easy alliance with somebody because you formally share a nationality if in point of fact, they're running a security state that's engaged in oppressive actions abroad, or that they're part of like a business infrastructure that makes it impossible for, um, you know, working people to enjoy sort of like the the basic freedoms. Um, And the only way that you can actually develop this kind of oppositional culture over time, I think is 
through a strong commitment to an internationalist politics. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you might not still be American and you're invested in like your own specific community, you're working locally, you understand yourself as being part of a community. Um, Even I root for the U.S. Re- in the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, feel free to. But it means that... Um, that unless you understand your own solidarities as not dependent on the border, but as bound to where, which people globally are facing similar conditions of oppression and how do you create links among them, then it's impossible to actually change circumstances. And that's, it's, the, it's the nationalist um, presumption of... Um, the social democratic wing of the Democratic Party, the, let's say the New Dealers in the 40s and 50s, and the, there's a kind of persistence um, with some of the politicians that we're discussing now, that's been incredibly destructive because it, what it's meant is at the end of the day, um, the tendency of New Dealers has been to close ranks, to recognize their affinities and connections as ultimately with the same business and security state figures um, rather than with, uh, with, with communities that are similarly imperiled. Um, and this is why... Ultimately, nationalist projects serve the interests of those who rule the nation in question. That's a pithy way of making exactly this sort of essential point, which is um, it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's you can do it in theory, but when push comes to shove, it's very difficult to extricate a kind of presumptive nationalism from the objectives of the security state. And because of how difficult it is to extricate those two, it means that the, the fallback on nationalism is the primary site of attachment rather than an oppositional culture that's built on the experiences of one's own community that's then linked together through coalitions of solidarity. This doesn't mean that you know, all you have is your own isolated group, like that you have oppressed communities linked together through coalitions of solidarity, that if you just begin with a nationalist premise, then inevitably it's gonna be really tough to think through, well, um, what to do when states are in conflict or when you're being called on to back the actions of the security state. Something particularly crazy making, I think, about the this liberal proposal to re-embrace nationalism is that's premised on this idea that's false, that liberal nationalism is a notional idea rather than something, as you have very well documented, that has been at the center of liberal American politics for throughout the entire long Cold War, and that we have an extraordinarily concrete example of today, which is the liberal political culture around the Russiagate investigation. Re-embracing kind of Cold War nationalism, I mean, first it seems absurd because, well, this has actually been sort of the defining bipartisan approach for the, you know, the last 60, 70 years. And it's precisely generated the kinds of institutional and ideological crises that we're facing now. And so the idea of the way to solve it is by just doubling down on what didn't work in the past. I mean, that seems absurd, but yet again, it's not that surprising because, as you say, with 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 Russia, like the Russia investigation, in a way, that's precisely how the national security establishment has responded um, to Russia's interference in the in the election. Um, 
you know, one of the things that led me to write the previous piece on the idea that the Cold War order is now finally fractured in the U.S. was the way in which it was counterintuitive, that if you just followed the news throughout 2017, you'd think that we're on our way to like a new Cold War. And if you just paid attention to pop culture with the return of the Americans, it would seem that like the Cold War was everywhere. But in many ways, like all of this is a kind of dying ember of, you know, of a, like a past order and an effort to use nostalgia, basically nostalgia for when there was like a coherent and explicit enemy um, to kind of pull together something that's like much more fractured and complicated than the present. And, you know, to me, like, again, I mentioned this in the most recent piece, like, I think that the investigation is actually important that sure. we should know. Most definitely. If, um, yeah, if like a foreign country was in, you know, was involved in shaping domestic public opinion in the context of election that the Trump, you know, Trump and his cronies are incredibly corrupt. And part of like the politics of accountability isn't just ensuring that there's not there's no longer impunity for people that have engaged in like torture and violence, but also that there's there's no impunity for oligarchs that like if you're wealthy, you're actually held accountable for your own financial crime. So like I think yeah. that that's, I'm glad Paul Manafort got caught. <laughs> totally. Like, you know, a big part of the problem is that, you know, that there's we have a criminal justice system where uh, there's there's essentially uh extreme violence meted out to those that are poor and uh, to and especially to minorities and that there's no accountability for those that are part of like the oligarchic class um but none of that means that the way that we should now respond is by ratcheting up a kind of belligerent posture toward russia which plays into all of the problems of well the only two ways that we can respond is through confrontation or appeasement um, or by then allowing this kind of ratcheting up of a, of a belligerent posture toward Russia uh, to allow an entire kind of class of national security so-called experts who not only brought us the Iraq war, but many of the worst excesses of, um, excesses of the war on terror that you know, participated in um, violent crackdowns on, on Muslims, mass surveillance, to now be able to use this particular investigation to rehabilitate their own image and to essentially galvanize elements of the Democratic Party's own base um, you know, to defend the, the operations of the security state. So, I mean, to me, like, it's an interesting thing that, in a way, this is asking... Um, folks, which I don't think is too much, to like walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> that you can both say like Russia is an ethno-nationalist right-wing state that is deeply authoritarian. Indeed, this is why um, Russia is now associated with all of these like white nationalist and Euro-nationalist parties, both in the US and elsewhere. And why Trump and Putin and, have a personal affinity for one another. Exactly. <laughs> like, you can both say all of that and also make the point that Russia, the, the relationship with Russia should not be used as a means of rehabilitation, rehabilitating a discredited national security state or defending a resort to the same old confrontational tactics that have only produced more violence. And that, you know, in the case of Russia specifically, would be really destructive too. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about like why, you know, thinking that like sanctions and force is the only way of engaging with Russia's is actually bad foreign policy. Yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that because I think that there's 
this incredible misconstrual when it's of the left skepticism of the political culture of Russiagate, misconstrual when it's not just ignored entirely, as though people on the left don't think Russia interfered um, or even weirder, don't think Russia is a, like a problematic nation state, um, but but rather that the political culture surrounding Russiagate is it's it's concretely dangerous in terms of the direction it's sending U.S. policy vis-a-vis Russia in Europe, in the Middle East, and with regard to nuclear weapons, for example. Can you talk a little bit about about how you see this shaping American foreign policy in, in ways that could be could be quite dangerous and already are? One thing that I I begin by saying is that, you know, um, so you have some people on the left that make the point, which I think is a really important point, that, well, the, you know, the U.S. has done this too. And then the liberal response is like, well, that's what, that's like the, the kind of whataboutism that, that, that Stalinists, that the Trump people do. And so just because the U.S. may have interfered in elections, then, you know, that shouldn't be a reason um, to dismiss or diminish like what's, you know, what Russia has done. And I agree with that, but I do think it's, I absolutely agree with that, but I do think it's important to just, to, to note that the U.S. has a systematic history of interfering in the domestic elections of other countries. Um, that's, you know, incredibly expansive. We can talk about this going all the way back to the early 20th century and places like the Dominican Republic um, to, you know, actually assassinating foreign leaders. So, you know, your audience knows all of this stuff. The reason why I think it's important is not the whataboutism point, which is like, oh, let's ignore what Russia did. But that one of the, like the deep um, kind of constitutive defects of the bipartisan, inter, like interventionist foreign policy that was generated by the Cold War, that's tied to this thought that America's interests are the world's interests, is a almost literal inability to see things from the perspective of the other actor. So if the U.S.'s interests and the interests of the rest of the world are identical, then if, if there's an actor like a state that's opposed or seemingly opposed to American foreign policy, then you know, in a way, like their ends must necessarily be problematic. Like there isn't really a need to interrogate like, well, what is it that's led them to those conclusions? Because the framing isn't that we have a world of distinct actors with their own separate judgments about what their security interests might be. Which is why we um, tend to attribute and- irrationality or so um, psychological pathology to uh, enemies. So there's this constant move, and you can see it going back to like how Castro was treated um, in the context of like you know what's going on with Cuba or the Soviet Union, but you know certainly more recently with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, with Putin now, even with some of the conversations around the politics of like North Korea, where um, there's a presumption of irrationality, and so all you really need to know are the internal motivations. Uh, your your own internal motivations, or perhaps the internal motivations of of your allies, um, and this is something that I think is like hugely destructive because we can both say that you know um, 
Putin is a troubling and authoritarian political figure that's that's entrenched a kind of religious ethno-nationalist politics that's um, that's very problematic, though quite different than um, kind of the than so Soviet ideology, and say that there actually might be internal reasons why Russia has been suspicious of um, U.S. policy going back now two decades. And we can play the same story out with Iran. Um, and so Russia specifically, that, you know, post-1989, um, the one of the thoughts about the end of the Cold War was that both the Warsaw Pact and NATO um, would end. And so this is something that people like Gorbachev or um, Havel just assumed is that, you know, these are old Cold War institutions. You get rid of them. You move toward a systematic effort to demilitarize um, Europe and you invest in new multilateral and regional institutions. That's not what the U.S. did. Instead, the U.S. backed an intense project of privatization in Russia and Eastern Europe that ended up being hugely destructive, created this new class of oligarchs and, and billionaires, um, starved state institutions, and created the conditions for the emergence of like, you know, right-wing populists like Putin. And then the US ended up pursuing NATO expansion, um, you know, precisely into what had been the traditional Russian sphere of influence, which um, folks in Russia understood as a kind of threatening act. And precisely because of the ways in which it was read as a threatening act, it actually strengthened the position of, uh, of Putin in the ethno-nationalist right. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Gorbachev um, about 10 years ago gave this interview where he, he sort of like referred to the U.S. as having a disease. And the disease was the winner's complex, which is like the, a version of the inability to understand things from the other perspective, but to continue to press for policies um, that that in a sense, like, you know, um, marginalized, contained, but don't recognize like the internal dynamics that other countries face. Explaining Russia's perception of NATO encirclement is not excusing Russia's response. And I think that's what it's often caricatured as being. I mean, it can't, it can be, but it's not necessarily, it's just explaining yeah. is a key to so, understanding. Some of the people that, that, you know, that, that are part of your audience may disagree with my views on this. Like I, you know, I, I'm no fan of um, Russia's actions in Crimea. I think um, what Russia has been doing in Syria is grotesque. Um, but, you know, part of this is just understanding, well, you know, how is it that the state and the actors within it have constructed or conceived of their own interests? And what does that mean in terms of how the U.S. might want to respond? Now, if the U.S. responds in the context of Russiagate, as most liberals want, which is just the kind of knee-jerk belligerency of like, well, let's let's pursue more sanctions, let's con let's continue sort of like NATO expansion, um, let's confront Russia in Syria. Um, all of these are practices that are going to be deeply destructive because at the end of the day, Russia is still a significant regional power. I mean, this isn't the Cold War, not only because the ideology of the state is fundamentally different than the ideology of the Soviet Union, but also because Russia just isn't the Soviet Union in terms of 
global power, global prestige, hearts and minds throughout the world, uh, you know, a revolutionary ideology that actually speaks um, to people across uh, the, the third world and the global south. But it's still a significant player. And it's, imp it's important that for international stability that you don't just have a, a posture of, um, of isolation and violence. And so we'll, does that mean you do nothing? I mean, there's, there are lots of tools. Like one tool is, well, go after domestic financial crime. Go after both domestic and international oligarchs and, you know, make it impossible for our own political system to be infiltrated in the way that it's been infiltrated. Um, you know, make clear that, uh, that we're not actually that the U.S. is not actually seeking um, uh, NATO expansion. Pursue significant bilateral talks um, with Putin when it comes to eliminating and ending air, um, airstrikes on all sides in Syria. Now, it might be the case that not all of these these things will necessarily bear fruit, but it's a much less de destabilizing way to go about how to interact with a global a global player. Um, than just like ratcheting up tension and tension that can have all of these spillover effects um, throughout Europe and the Middle East. I, I want to end by by asking you about what you just started to touch on, which is what a left foreign policy might look like. It should be premised, I think, on some utterly correct slogans that the left has had, like no war. <laughs> um, but it's got to go well beyond slogans. And I don't think we're very well prepared for that at the moment. We have to talk concretely about what the U.S. government acting in the world would look like in terms of what would happen to NATO. How should we think about the rise of China? How should the U.S. rebalance its relationships in the Middle East? It's easy to say we should be shifting away from the Sisi Netanyahu uh, bin Salman alliance, which obviously we should, but, but how do you concretely do that without making without making them the new Iran. I don't know. So it's. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess my question is, how should the left think about diplomacy and force in the context of international power struggles? I think this is the issue that the national security state establishment types would accuse the left of being Pollyannish on. Part of the reason why I think this is really important. I mean, it's, so it's it's important for at, at least um, two kind of key reasons. Like the first is. If the if there is no kind of clearly co comprehensive laid out um, framework that includes actual concrete responses to all of these questions, then inevitably the people that are going to come back into power with any democratic administration are going to be the same people that you know that were either complicit in the Iraq War or have perpetuated the violence of the war on terror in the national security state because those are the only people there. You know, I should add one thing, which is it's not the case that there, there's absolutely like no liberal voices. They are. And they're, in fact, even like clear liberal space. I mean, excuse me, no left voices. There are. And they're actually even clear left spaces um, and institutions. So, for example, there's uh, there's Merip, the uh, Middle East Research and Information Project that's been doing, like, you know, really important and extensive work on um, what's going on in the Middle East for years. but these are voices that are systematically marginalized and institutions that are woefully like uh, underfunded. They just, you know, you have an entire framework of what amounts to, um, you know, liberal philanthropy 
that just doesn't invest in the institutions of left foreign policy. Um, and so s some of this is ensuring that those voices actually increasingly have a seat at the table. And they can only have a seat at the table if, um, if their opinions are promoted and if they're linked in some kind of clear way to the elected part of the, the Democratic Party, the Sanders wing that claims, in fact, to, to be progressive. Um, so all of that is part of the story of like, there needs to be like a change to the people that are actually going to staff these positions. And there have to be different perspectives, both developed as well as, you know, perspectives that may exist, but are almost, you know, um, thoroughly or completely marginalized. And then there's the question about like, well, what should the, the views be? Like it, to me, I think it's really important that there's an an overarching commitment to a non-imperial American foreign policy. And what I mean by that is a basic rejection of the idea that the U.S. enjoys international police power to reconstruct foreign states and other communities as it sees fit. And so treats, this is the what's been the foundational element of American foreign policy for decades, like treats um, other communities as essentially like instruments to the service of security ends. Um, unless the bedrock commitment is a non-imperial framework, then simply changing one-off policies won't matter because new issues will reemerge or will emerge, and the same you know problematic instincts will end up rearing their ugly head again. So I, you know, in the piece, I try to sort of begin to spell out like what a non-imperial approach might look like, and um, you know, this is just the beginning. Like other people can add to it. To me, <clears throat> a key element of it is. Um, not just domestic, but global social democracy. And that means like linking um, the domestic questions about labor, um, poverty, and justice to the politics of anti-austerity um, globally and to altering and shifting institutional arrangements um, that end up funneling money into, um, into militarism um, and that promote the starving of of, of social resources. So that was one key element. Another is this, the principle of do no harm. And that's both a claim about, you know, how the U.S. should think about the exercise of its own force, but also an argument about um, the kinds of constraints that we should put on our own putative allies, that we should hold our allies accountable for their own acts of, um, of violence. And it's also tied to the idea that there has to be consequences for domestic bad behavior, that if you have um, elites and government officials that are engaging in acts of lawlessness, that um, they need to be held accountable for those acts. And the U.S. has to make clear that it's going to abide by its domestic international legal commitments, that these are not just discretionary and occasional to be jumped into and moved out of depending <clears throat> on uh, on the needs of the state. And then the third element is um, something that we spoke a little bit about the last time, which is, um, you know, a fairly systematic transformation, indeed, like demobilization of the national security state infrastructure. Um, there's talk about getting rid of homeland security, getting rid of ICE, but we have to really think about demobilizing the security state alongside um, ending mass incarceration, demobilizing the carceral state, and thinking of these two things as packaged together. And then that raises all these questions about, well, well, then how will security policy actually proceed? Like what happens to what reigns of like the National Security Agency? How do you think of security under those circumstances? And if these are principles, you know, underneath them are 
you know, dozens, certainly more maybe, of like, you know, very specific policy questions that have to actually be, be teased out. And that's something that, you know, has to be done within new left institutions, but also has to be, you know, required of so-called progressive Democrats. That if the if you have a new generation of social democratic democratic politicians, um, in order for them to be able to claim that they're they're actually genuinely of the left, they're going to have to have responses to questions like, you know, do you think there should be a uh, a Department of Homeland Security. Like, we get rid of Department of Homeland Security. What do we do about immigration policy? Like, do you think there should be a CIA? If we get rid of the CIA. Um, what do we think about how, like, intelligence gathering should occur? Um, and on and on and on. And certainly, you know, China policy, we didn't even get a chance to talk about is something that's, like, profound and key. Because in many ways, if there's going to be a, a quote-unquote new Cold War, if the kind of nostalgia for the past is going to generate belligerency and confrontation, that China's the most obvious, um, uh, you know, antagonist, quote-unquote, precisely because of the ways in which China is um, a global power with a model of governance, that kind of managed authoritarianism that's replicating. Aziz Rana, thank you so much as always. My pleasure. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that Louis Bonaparte usurped power by exploiting the war of classes in France and perpetuated it by periodical wars abroad, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends and family about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but not least, please do go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help.